Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to expand your consciousness, stimulate your thought, enhance your mental and physical health, and encourage community. Today, we have a terrific interview coming up with Joel Kramer and Diana Alstead on their latest book, actually their second latest book, there's another one out since, The Guru Papers, Masks of Authoritarian Power. Let me read you something that Dr. Marsha Rosenbaum, who was a guest on this program some while ago, some of you might remember, she was here talking about harm reduction. That was the uh, program on which the White House tried to intervene on the program. Uh, Some of you may remember that. Here's what, uh, this is paraphrasing what uh, Dr. Rosenbaum says about the guru papers. That in order to ensure a stable structure, societies oppose a moral order that exhorts individuals to renounce selfish desires or self-desires for the greater good, however the greater good is defined. In order for this personal renunciation to occur, individuals must be convinced that a higher power, human or otherwise, knows best. Control then comes from the dictates of this higher power, bringing hidden authoritarianism to social institutions such as religion, education, and morality. This, in turn, is the foundation of our social and self-control mechanisms. The ultimate effect of such beliefs which pervade our society is individuals' collective lack of self-confidence in their own power and intelligence, bringing to each of us a basic self-mistrust. Creative thinking and acting are curtailed. Ironically, such creativity is precisely what is needed to survive in the complex world of accelerated change we now inhabit. Therein lies the real danger of hidden authoritarianism. We are ill-equipped for modern life. That about the guru papers and the interview you're going to hear today with Dr. Diana Alsted and Joel Kramer. But first, news and notes in psychology and medicine. Ah, GlaxoSmithKline to pay the largest fine in all of history, $3 billion. And why are they paying $3 billion in fine? Because the drug giant pled guilty to promoting two drugs for unapproved uses and failing to report safety data about a diabetes drug. The settlement will cover criminal fines as well as civil settlements with the federal and state governments. What are the drugs? Paxil, Paxil folks. Wellbutrin and Avandia. You'll recall that I had uh, Robert Whitaker on this program uh, some months ago, uh, interviewed him about his book, The Anatomy of an Epidemic, in which he points out from his investigative journalism that the SSRIs are not only not helping those with mental illness, but the SSRIs are creating mental illness. How did that come about, according to Whitaker? By giving these medicines to people who do not have 
neurochemical neurotransmitter imbalances to begin with the medicines thereby cause an imbalance and then of course when the people try to get off the medicines their neurotransmitters are totally out of whack and they go through a withdrawal which makes them think that their symptoms are coming back but actually what's going on is they're going through withdrawal from the very medicines that they were erroneously placed on now comes GlaxoSmithKline paying three billion dollars in fines and the bottom line is the only way to really stop these companies according to many people including the Attorney General is they have to remove the employees who engage in the misconduct. The very executives who are in charge of these companies are the ones who need to lose their jobs and be fined. But instead, what goes on is the companies get fined. The money comes out of your pocket and my pocket. The people who perpetrated these frauds stay on their jobs. Puts all of us in a very precarious situation. Lots of lack of credibility. Caveat emptor, folks caveat emptor with regard to anything that we take in and ingest. Now, let's see. A couple of weeks ago, we had the prominent thoracic surgeon, cardiovascular surgeon, Dr. Dwight C. Lindell on the program, one of his books, The Great Cholesterol Lie. You'll recall that what he focused on after doing 5,000 open-heart surgeries is what he saw inside is inflammation and he's saying it's the inflammation that's creating the cholesterol buildup not the fatty foods and he was recommending that we change the food pyramid and add protein and decrease carbohydrate now comes yet another study published in the journal of the british medical journal low carbohydrate high protein diet may increase the risk for cardiovascular disease according to a larger study what do we do folks one expert 5,000 surgeries he's done he's telling us that we should turn around and be eating more carbohydrates and more protein here we have the low carbohydrate diet is increasing the risk for cardiovascular disease well again Another case of caveat emptor. We've got to learn as much as we possibly can, I guess, use our heads and create as balanced a diet as we can. What else can we do? We've got to learn a lot more on this topic. But, the, you know, when you have experts on both sides of the aisle saying two opposite things, it's very confusing for all of us. And here's something that perhaps is even more confusing. Female sexual dysfunction remains a controversial topic, even as it becomes an official diagnosis to be called in the DSM, remember the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual that's used across this country for various diagnoses. It's now called Female Sexual Interest Arousal Disorder. It'll come out in 2013. Yes, you heard that right. Female sexual interest and arousal disorder. I guess that means if you don't have enough sexual interest and you don't have enough arousal, then you get a diagnosis, and of course, then somebody's going to sell you a pill. You recall that other program we did where we, we found out that uh, the Harvard professors who were involved in putting this book together were on the take from the pharmaceutical companies to create more diagnostic categories, thereby creating more customers to sell pills to. 
Obviously, if you can get every person in the United States in some diagnostic category, then all of us will be on some kind of pill, and it'll be an ongoing annuity for the pharmaceutical companies ad infinitum, or should I say ad nauseum. Uh, so, the Journal of the American Medical Association says that 43% of American women age 18 to 59 experience some form of sexual dysfunction, including lack of desire, lack of arousal, lack of orgasm, or pain during intercourse. So, what do you think is going to happen next? The marketplace starting to respond. In the absence of government-approved female counterpart to men's potency drugs like Viagra, Cialis, and Levetra, many women are turning to over-the-counter products, including lubricants, arousal gels, massage oils, nutritional and herbal supplements, and vibrators. Drugstore chains are now selling these project products right next to the bandages and the heating pads. KY Intense a female arousal gel that claims to heighten clitoral sensitivity is sold in Walmart, Walgreens, and Rite Aid. This is not a commercial, folks. I'm just reading what's going on here. Sensuva's On, an arousal oil, can be found in 640 stores nationwide. Intamina by Lalo, an intimate lifestyle line that manufactures personal massages, apparel, and intimate cosmetics, is now sold at Pharmaca integrative pharmacies, and the biggest one is Zestra, essential arousal oil, which is sold in 1,800 Walmarts around the country. Wow. The average woman is in a, com in a committed relationship is having sex only once a week, according to the president of one of these laboratories. It's not that we want them to have more sex, says the president. It's just that we want them to enjoy their sex more when they are having it. Well, do I say caveat emptor for the third time in one, in one program, or do I say what one of the scientists who read this says, well, no harm done, you can try some of these things, N nobody's saying that they do any damage, and maybe they will do a little good. Well, I guess that's enough for that. Now on to our interview with Dr. Diana Alsted and Joel Kramer. Dr. Diana Alsted, a Woodrow Wilson Fellow, received her doctorate from Yale University back in 1971. She taught in the humanities and initiated and taught the first women's studies courses at Yale and Duke. Joel Kramer, our other author, did postgraduate study in philosophy and psychology, was a resident teacher at the Esalen Institute, He's also the author of the best-selling The Passionate Mind, and he's an internationally acknowledged adept of physical and mental yoga. Diana and Joel have written and led seminars together since 1974. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Joel and Diana. It's good to be here, Richard. Hello, Richard. Good morning, Diana. Good morning, Joel. You heard my introduction. Uh, I excerpted uh, an article that uh, our friend uh, Dr. Marsha Rosenbaum wrote uh, about the Guru Papers, and she was focusing in on how we have been taught to give up our own power to a higher power 
that, quote, knows best. Is this one of the central themes of the Guru Papers? Yes, it is. <laughs> and this um, higher power, it, it, it doesn't have to be uh, supernatural. It could be your mother, your father, your lover, a guru, a teacher, an expert. Um, the point for the way we define authoritarianism simply is an ideology or person that claims to know what's best for you, better than you do, and most importantly, is unchallengeable. That means close to feedback and being shown where they're wrong and changing, and that process that's so necessary for eras of rapid change and accelerated change like we're in now. So the difference between an authority and authoritarian is the authoritarian claims to know, as you put it, in a way that's unchallengeable, claims to know more about what's good for us than we know for ourselves. Right, and people can approach Marxism or Freudianism or Jungianism, any ism in an authoritarian way if they treat it as an unchallengeable ideology or belief system instead of using critical thinking to keep up with the times and keep seeing how um, connected it is with current realities. So people are taught to look outside of themselves or to look to this figure or to this structure rather than being taught to look where? Inside of themselves? Are the answers inside of ourselves? Well, you know, you know they're being taught you know, you know, from the cradle on in some ways that their perspectives are not right. They're kids. They have to listen to their parents. And, uh, you know, what we're saying is that, yes, you have to look inside, but you also have to look outside at the world and how it works and, how, and you know, what's really going on here. And that if you take the conditioning of always looking for an external authority that knows what's best for you, you're fundamentally giving your power away. Right. The, the um, place where we locate some of the big problems of why people want to give their power away is they are inculcated with self-mistrust by the moralities that the world religions have all been promulgating for thousands of years, which make people feel guilty about being self-centered. They call it selfish. They use a pejorative instead of realizing that self-centeredness has negative and positive attributes. It's a source of creativity and self-protectiveness and balance as well as of egoism and harmful things. And so these unrealistic, unlivable moralities that villainize uh, self-centeredness and self-protectiveness and sexuality um, and healthy self-care divide the self and um, result in self-mistrust. And once you split the self and people can't trust their inner wisdom and their perceptions, then they look for authorities with certainty that promote that, that claim to have certainty and to give their power to. How do you see that as going on in the United States right now? Well, I, you know, I see it as quite prevalent, for example, that, you know, we're trained to go to experts, uh, you know, being if, if the experts are doctors or lawyers or whatever, and we, uh, you know, are accustomed to take their word for whatever they say. When you were mentioning the uh, problem with Paxil, for example, you know, doctors were giving out pills to people who didn't need them at all. They were just taking them because doctors gave it to them. Well, there's another way that's even more pervasive 
we, we feel a democracy can only be as democratic as the minds of its citizens. And uh, our democracy, is more modern democracy, is still a baby. It came about in the 18th century. And um, although there were human rights and certain balance of powers that were established, people, everybody still had minds that were conditioned by this authoritarian morality of making uh, self-centeredness bad and selflessness and giving good, so that even atheists and people that, um, or agnostics that no longer have the religious metaphysics, we've all been conditioned by our parents to think self-centered equals selfish, which means it's all entirely bad instead of just um, sometimes bad and sometimes really important, really good. You wouldn't want to be in an abusive relationship and not take care of yourself and set conditions. And the ideal of unconditional love <clears throat> is another example of these unlivable ideals that don't allow you to take care of yourself. So we feel that the citizens in the United States, they're in varying degrees, have and a social virus that we call hidden authoritarianism that's the most extreme and fundamentalist and people that are just overtly authoritarian. But it exists in varying degrees in a lot of us, which is why people take capsule and go to experts and doctors and have other manifestations of this, including addiction, which is a manifestation of a divided self seeking relief from an inner authoritarian that's trying to make you live up to unlivable... Um, issue uh, ideals and imposing too much self-control. So you want to escape it through addictive substances or shopping or um, activities. Now, you talk in your book about how religion, it fosters this belief in looking outside and looking to uh, authoritarian uh, people or authoritarian structures rather than taking the time to think about whatever the particular thing is. Would you uh, would elaborate on that a bit for us, please? Well, you know, one could start with Christianity and the uh, concept of original sin, uh, which maybe modern Christians have, you know, set aside, but it's part of the dogma there. So that you're born with original sin, you're born flawed. And if you're born flawed, the only way to not be flawed is to listen to some sort of authority that presumes not to be flawed, and that's, you know, that's just for openers, for example. And, you know, if you look at religious structures, if you look at Islam, Islam means literally to obey, submission. And uh, so, yes, it is part of religious structures, and, you know, we feel that authoritarianism has been the glue that has held social orders together by presenting an agreed-upon morality. Well, you know, if people buy the morality, the culture can move along as it does, taking advantage of people and giving other people, uh, you know, a lot of advantage. But, you know, if you don't buy the morality, then you are, you know, stuck, if you want to talk it this, uh, about it this way, of, you know, seeing what kind of way a society can hold itself together without having some sort of... Uh, non-existent or far away, you know, authority, you know, calling the shots. One of the examples you use in your book about a, a, a kind of religion that purports to be non-authoritarian, 
but what you're saying is in fact quite authoritarian is something that uh, some of our listeners are, are uh, familiar with called the Course in Miracles. Um, yes. p- tell us about how you see the Course of Miracles actually being qu- pushing forth actually uh, authoritarian principles w- while claiming to be non-authoritarian. <coughs> well, you know, the Course... Uh, uh, the uh, you know the course of miracles has a particular dictum, and uh, you know the dictum is you create your own reality. So you know whatever happened to you, you in one sense or other have made it, you know, to become that way. Well, you know that you know from our perspective is part of an authoritarian structure that poses an ideal that's not real. So that if you, uh, you know, take that on, for example, and you stub your toe at your fault, or you step on a nail, a nail at your fault. So it's a guilt-producing uh, machine in one way or another that uh, is authoritarian by its very nature because it sets up an ideal of how you should be and look at the world that, you know, from our perspective is uh, <laughs> just not true. Well, we have a chapter on uh, the, t- critiquing the belief you, you create your own reality, saying, well, yes, you partly create your own reality, but it also creates you. It's a two-way feed. Um, it's not just a one-way street where you're the only thing in the universe creating reality. Yeah, it's and a- it's important to have your worldview be as in touch with reality as possible in a, a time when uh, our species is threatened and there are so many global changes. If we are living in a state of illusion uh, that's only partially true, um, one of the things uh, Joel often says is a partial truth that's presented as a total truth is a, is a total lie, because it really puts you out of touch with the other side of reality. For instance, that reality co-creates you, that you uh, self-centeredness is some, sometimes very important and good and a source of creativity, the old religions usually had worldviews that separated good from evil, and they called half of human nature bad and original sin or ignorant, as in the East, and the other half that we were supposed to strive to, you know, eradicate the bad half, get selfless, do ego loss with no sin, etc., be a saint. Um, this is the where the self splits, and people begin to mistrust themselves. What is the danger in, in my believing, if I were to believe the Course in Miracles, what is the danger in my believing that I create my own reality? Well, you know, the danger is that, you know, as you move through life, you know, things are going to happen. Uh, you know, uh, you, you know you're going to get a flat tire, or you're going to get cancer, or you're going to get something. Now, if you take that on as something you did to yourself, you know, which is, uh, what the Course of Miracles promulgate, then, you know, the danger is that you suffer guilt. The danger is that, you know, you try to eradicate it on your own because you did it instead of realizing that we are part of a social context that in order to really survive, we need each other and we need each other's help and we can't do it all on our own as the Course of Miracles promulgates. So, you know, from our perspective, it's, you know, it's a very dangerous perspective. Well, also, uh, like religion in general, we, we live in a democracy that's in trouble, that needs 
and a world that's in trouble that needs social evolution, social activism, a good analysis of what the complex issues are, good strategies, clear thinking, creative intelligence based on feedback, and a worldview that's in touch with reality. So if you have a worldview that's not in touch with reality, which we think is the case um, with uh, most uh, traditional religions and, of course, in miracles, um, then you're going to be less effective at solving the challenges that humanity faces in order to survive and protect the world and the planet. It's... um, Religions are comforting. The Course in Miracles is comforting, and that's why they have a, a lot of popularity and staying power, because they do promote beliefs that make people feel better, especially if there's a tragedy or something where people need consolation. The problem is that because they're, in our opinion, their um, worldviews and metaphysics are out of touch with reality and not uh, like as likely as something else, um, then it makes the world have more problems because, and then people need more comforting. The more problems the world has and the more that are created by religions, including violence and conflict between belief systems, but not only that, then the more comforting people need. And so it becomes a, a vicious circle of people turning to religion for comfort that causes problems. That's kind of in a nutshell. Where <laughs> well, another example, you know, comes from our later book, the uh, Passionate Mind Revisited, where we begin to examine the very popular concept of be here now. And if you look at it very carefully, it is an anti-thought structure. Be here now is generally presented as being in your body or being in the beauty of the sunset. In other words, it has a sensual component. The actuality is it's impossible not to be here now because whatever's happening is happening in the here and now, whether it be the beauty of a sunset or a thought about the future. And from our perspective, the as, you know the negation of uh, thinking ahead into the future that that particular ideology represents is exactly what we don't need. What we need is far-sightedness about the implications of our actions into the future. The fact of the matter is that we are in, pro- in a, problem, a, problematic, a problematic, excuse me, problematic position right now because we have not seen the implication of our present actions into the future, which from our perspective has to be done more and better and smarter. Right. So, again, we're talking about balancing things and instead of being one-sided. So, be here now can enhance daily life and bring respite from a hectic schedule. It's a good, uh, good reminder, <laughs> but it's also imbalanced as a formula for living because we also need to develop our species' sophisticated time sense that looks at past causality and history and future implications. <clears throat> I like to say with be here now that there's a problem even with the concept of be here now. Who says where here stops and there begins? If I'm here now, does that mean I'm not aware there's a war in Afghanistan or climate change or, you know, that I'm living on Earth? I mean, where, of course, be here now is wherever, it's everything. We're in a galaxy right now. Be here now isn't just looking at a blade of grass in front of you or or smelling the rose, but that's how it's, it's traditionally been linked with sens- 
sensation in order to cut it off from thought, which is the bias from Eastern religion, which is always trying to still thought in order to be mindful. Religions are always uh, anti-thought, anti-critical thinking, so that's just one way that it, it is an example in this case. When we talk about... Um Turn- it's hard to hear you. Could you talk up a little? I said when we talk about, um, and you talk about uh, giving over the power, and, and uh, but at the same time being totally responsible uh, for creating our own reality, those two sound like they're in conflict. Are they? Yes, because one, because no one human being can be totally responsible for creating reality. So they are in conflict. Reality is, you know, is created by the, uh, all of us. I think Richard was saying that giving yourself up to a higher power seems to be in conflict with being in control of your reality. Yes. That's it, what, the, what he's addressing oh, there. Oh, I see. Yes. So, well, when you surrender to a belief that you create your own reality you're surrendering to a belief that's out of touch with reality, and the reason that you're doing it is it gives you the illusion of having more control. So it's a funny thing. We wrote this whole chapter, Do You Create Your Own Reality?, to show how it, uh, this belief originated in the worldview of karma in the East, where people um, are, are, have to pay for their actions, and it, it's kind of a fatalistic belief in the East that your, your karma determines your life, but the West, in a typical fashion, reverses it and turns what's a fatalistic Eastern belief into a a source of more power and control. And we describe how this uh, sleight of hand, (laughs) sleight of thinking is done in that chapter. But I I would rather move on to more important things like how um, corporations are feeding people bad food that's causing uh, a health crisis in America and how that's linked with corporations being treated as people and having to put profit ahead of uh, people. And I think that whole thing is linked with uh, having an authoritarian mindset in the citizenry that's not reforming the country enough. Um, have, you, have you heard, Richard, of this, these B corporations, this new movement, so that corporations legally can have a triple bottom line, take taking the people, the planet, and profit into account instead of just profit. I think that's important for all corporations that deal with food, with living things, with people, with the earth, with agriculture, with drugs, with pharmaceuticals. I think they should all be, have to be B corporations so they're not legally forced to make money, the bottom line, because that causes corruption and destruction around the planet. That's the problem right now with capitalism is that they need to have... All of them that deal with life and the earth be B corporations, but that's not going to happen as long as corporations are people. So we think the Guru Papers could help foster reforming our democracy, which is in trouble right now. One of the concepts that you explore in the Guru Papers that I'd like you to, to, uh, to go into in some depth for us is the concept of surrender. Uh, please tell us about uh, your your, your uh, sentiments and your thoughts on the concept of surrender, surrender. And, and surrender and how it plays you into. You know, surrender is a, uh, a fairly powerful psychological mechanism because 
if you surrender to another person or you surrender to a, say, religion or an ideology, then you, in some fashion, really don't take responsibility for your action. That it, you know, that you have given yourself over to something else, and there is a uh, deep relaxation in it. There is the belief that there is someone uh, with far, far greater knowledge than you in charge, and everything is going to be okay. And yet, it's that belief. It's it's those kinds of beliefs that led us to where we are today, which is in a very precarious place indeed. But isn't surrender an essential aspect of religion? Yes. I mean, so how would how would you see people? I mean, the, the, we live in a Christian country, and uh, you know, the majority of the people believe in in God, and and the majority of the people uh, are connected to uh, one, usually one religion. How, how do you get from here to there? Uh, well, you know, it's very interesting to talk to people who call themselves Christians because there is a whole spectrum of, you know, what these people believe. You know, some people, the fundamentalists, take things literally. Other people who are, uh, you know, trying to transform the religion to uh, meet modern needs, you know, sort of pick and choose what they like. You know, I've talked to a Christian who, you know, who I've asked, uh, you know, do you believe in uh, the, you know, total divinity of Christ? And the person says, no, well, this, you know, does this make them a non-Christian? Uh, and then when I ask them, you know, what about Christianity is holding you? They talk about the community, the morality, and... Uh, the identity. And the identity. The history. So the people are attempting to, uh, you know, take the thing they're comfortable with, in this instance, Christianity, and make it into something that can work for them. However, you know, this causes a sort of a, uh, you know, a discrepancy in their minds because they're trying to hold, you know, different belief systems uh, together as, uh, in ways that doesn't work. The way I would describe it is many modern people ha- live with two compartments in their head. One compartment is, you know, secular. They believe in Darwin and evolution, science, uh, all these things. And the other compartment is sometimes traditional spirituality, whether it's Eastern or Western or Christian, that they modify and try to modernize. But often there's a lot of discrepancies between those two compartments that they don't even look at. For instance, the psychology and the morality of that's anti-self-centered, that's anti-selfish, um, anti-ego that comes from Eastern and Western religions, that's coming from a pre-Darwinian worldview that did not acknowledge that we are primates, we are animals, we are social animals. And all living things have a core of self-centeredness, self-concern, self-protectiveness. That's why they eat, that's why they make love, reproduce, take care of themselves, want to be warm, not suffer flee from pain, seek pleasure. This is part of being an animal. So we are living in an era with a very old morality that's taken on a life of its own. Um, and it's in everybody that's not, not necessarily particularly religious. And then there's a lot of reactiveness against that morality with, say, Ayn Rand and um, 
certain Republicans that are anti-giving and anti-taking care of others that are pushing social Darwinism. That's a reaction against this anti-ego, uh, anti-selfish morality. So we have both extremes right now tearing our country apart. What we need is more clear thinking about morality and social evolution so that we can escape from this polarization, this deadlock, this argument between two sides where they're each um, reacting in a one-sided way, not taking our full primate nature into account, which is a mixture of selfless and giving and loving and competitive and aggressive. It sounds to me like what part of what you're talking about is the history of the human race, going to the time when, you know, going back into ancient Egypt when we had 1% uh, ruling the entire, the entire uh, population, and 99% were slaves, and then you had the little you know, few percent, at the, the 1% at the top who were the pharaohs, but then they had the religious people behind them, and they had the army behind them. And, and yet we come all the way to 10,000 years later to the formation of our country, and again, there's a basic divide between the haves and the have-nots. I mean, we, we started our country with uh, to be a Republican democracy, yet at the same time, as you too well know, um, most of us know, we had both slaves at the time, and we continued that for another hundred years, and women didn't have the right to vote. And there's a sort of an essential divide between a humanitarianism on the one hand and this what you're calling authoritarianism on the other hand. It, it, and it's, it, it just keeps going on and on. What, what what I'm wondering about is how do you what how do you see us getting off this this treadmill of authoritarianism, uh, forcing the, uh, the the other elements, perhaps humanitarianism, you know, down into the mud. Well, we each have to do our own part. Uh, there's right now a, a movement I think is great, and many organizations are pushing corporations are not people. Uh, that constitutionally they should not be considered people because that's given them so many rights to exploit the earth, given that profit, they're legally forced to make money, their, their primary concern. So I think that's at the bottom of the health epidemics in America that the government claims is bankrupting us. Well, yes, it's bankrupting us because you're not putting uh, laws forcing corporations to take people into account instead of just profit. It, the way you, the so way many you, of our problems are linked to the way things are, are working. You mean the basic structure, so the basic books, structure we, of we having money at the bottom what? line. The basic structure of having money being the mission statement rather than what you're talking about in these B corporations where, right. human, where human values are part of the mission. Right. So we need a reform in the country, and we wrote the Guru Papers in order to put the concept on the map of a social virus of hidden authoritarianism in our morality and worldview uh, in varying degrees from whether you're fundamentalist or Tea Party or right-wing or um, authoritarian and as also in the leftist movement um, or just normal atheists, we all carry to some degree aspects of this um, vi virus. And we're, trying to put, we're trying to make the citizenry more conscious rather than blaming politicians for not living up to their promises and because as long as people treat, uh, expect politicians, well, first of all, if you have this social virus, it means people expect politicians to be holier than thou and selfless, and politicians have to claim, like gurus, 
to be holier than thou and selfless and incorruptible and only doing good for you. Uh, instead of speaking the truth, which is to say, if a politician could say, look, I'm corruptible, I'm an animal, all, uh, power tends to corrupt, We need, if you elect me, please protect me by installing uh, intelligent watchdog mechanisms and reforming the system so that I won't be controlled by money, so that elections, ads don't cost so much, so that elections don't cost so much, so that lobbyists don't have so much power, so the corporations aren't controlling the media, so that uh, FDA isn't corrupt, and so that corporations can be held in line. We need the citizens to reform democracy in order for politicians to live up to the high ideals that many of them would like to live up to but can't and still be elected. So politicians are being forced to lie in a lot of cases. And in a, and in a lot of cases, we're electing the best liars because they're competing the best instead of the ones that are honest that would say, I'm corruptible, protect me, don't trust me after I'm elected because the system is going to be pushing me toward uh, being influenced by money the way it's set up. And please reform the system, by the way. So we're trying to do our share by putting this social virus of hidden authoritarianism on the map and then trying to link it with how it's causing problems in our democracy right now. When we have a physical virus, we look for it. We might do blood tests. We might do urine tests. We might do various other kinds of tests. How do we look for hidden authoritarianism? How do we look for this social virus? How does each, the listeners, and when we're listening to this program, the takeaway, what do we go out of here and we say, this is an interesting thing that, uh, that Alstead and Kramer are telling us, that there's hidden authoritarianism in various social structures which are suppressing our spirit, which are, which are oppressing us as a people. How do we find it? How do we go looking for it? Well, you know, one of the places that you can look is where your highest ideals are and where you are trying, in our opinion, to become something you're not. For, you know, for example, if you're trying to become, you know, uh, totally selfless and giving and love everybody all the time, you know, you're opposing uh, ideologies you can't live up to. Or be in the now all the time or love unconditionally or not, you know... Uh, you know, this is not that new. If, yeah, if you have guilt uh, because you can't live up to these ideals or frustration. Go on, Joel. You know, uh, you know, uh, you know. Some years ago, uh, you know, they have uh, made tests to, uh, you know, point out, you know, where authoritarian personalities live. Now, how good these tests are, I don't know. But you know, this is not a new concept. You know, in a very real way. And if, you know, if the uh, society was interested in, uh, you know, testing for where authoritarianism lives, it doesn't live in germs or stuff like this, it lives in your mind. And, uh, you know, there are ways of, uh, you know, of testing that, but we're very far from that. Well, for instance, if you are disappointed with Obama and uh, upset that he didn't live up to his ideals, instead of being upset with our side, or I'm going to say he's on, we're on his side, who elected him in four years ago, or three and a half, but then did not two years ago go and vote and give him a Congress that he could work with. Instead, he came into office in the worst historical situation ever, economically, on the planet, and in our democracy, and with war, and everything everybody knows. Then two years later, 
instead of giving him a Congress he could work with, because it took him a couple years to learn the job, we gave him the worst Congress in American history that's not into compromise or discussion or anything democratic, that's totally authoritarian, following Grover Nordquist's pledge to never raise taxes, which is an authoritarian pledge. The Republican Party is being run in a very authoritarian way, which is militaristic and quite efficient in some ways at winning because it's solely focused on power and not on what's good for people or the country. Well, so I'm giving an example of um, that people could also look at what kind of inner conflicts they have around addictions, trying to live up to ideals they don't seem to live up to. Uh, this is a sign of having a divided self. If you, uh, in the Guru Papers, in Part 2, there are six chapters, and all of the chapters in the Guru Papers stand on their own so that you don't need to read the whole book. So you could just read the addiction chapter and see how the inner battle for self-control, can, you can get out of it through seeing the component parts. Many people tell us that after reading the guru papers, parts of it or all of it, they begin to see authoritarianism everywhere in their minds, in the society, and how things work, that it's a liberating book just to read it. I'm sorry to plug it, but really, that's what we've been told no been apology there for many years. Yeah, no apology necessary. I mean, one of your basic uh, 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 theories here is that authoritarianism is about control, right? Authoritarianism is about control over people. Over what? Over people. Over yes. people. And it's also about trying to impose self-control in ways that are harmful and that cause a divided self and addictive personality. Talk to us about the, how you apply your theory of authoritarianism to addiction. Well, we've, we've, talked, <clears throat> we've spoken about um, this unlivable, unlivable spiritual ideals of selflessness, altruism, compassion, um, all those are good ideals, but to just try to be only that and eradicate the other parts of our primate nature, which can't be eradicated, instead of learning to see the whole thing and live with it intelligently and in a balanced way. So if you have a divided self, which, which has an inner authoritarian trying to make you live up to high ideals that you can't live up to and cause guilt, then you split off into a reactive, sabotaging, what we call bad self, so-called bad self. A rebelling self. That rebels against this so-called good self with the high, unlivable ideals. And it uses addictive behavior or substances to take control away from this authoritarian good self and say, you can't control me. And then you, you experience yourself as being out of control but what's actually happening is one of the two sides, the good self or the bad self, is always in control. So when you experience yourself as being out of control with an addiction, what's really in control is the bad self, well, the so-called bad self that's rebelling against the so-called self-designated good self through whether it's shopping or a substance or any kind of gambling, any kind of behavior where you feel out of control. We define addiction in this case not medically, um, uh, like say you could be addicted to coffee, but if you don't mind it, it's, we don't, that's not the kind of addiction we're talking about. We're talking about addictions that involve an inner battle for self-control and a lot of conflict. Were you doing something you think you shouldn't be and are trying not to be, but you can't because there's a 
inner battle within you. So that chapter is about looking at the dynamics of that inner battle and the two parts and um, moving out of it through seeing clearly its nature. You know, the subtitle of that chapter, I believe, is Why It Feels Good to Be Bad. No, that's the subtitle of the preceding chapter on the origin of the divided self, of the world's view that splits the world into good and evil. The addiction chapter is called Who is in Control? In other words, which side of your divided self? And the subtitle is The Authoritarian Roots of Addiction because it's rooted in authoritarian worldviews and social structures. So do you... authoritarian personality. And as we said, that could be an atheist or an agnostic. We're not just talking religion here or fundamentalism. We're talking about a deep split between unlivable ideals that make you feel guilty and have inner conflict and uh, try to impose too much self-control. So another part of you wants to take over control and surrender to an addictive substance. So if I understand you, then what you're saying is you've got this natural being that we call humans. I I, I can't hear you. What did you say? We have this natural being that we call humans. Yes. And over a period of time, these, these structures have been imposed upon these humans, and that you believe that these structures that have been imposed upon them are so misguided in terms of what is natural for these humans, that it it has led to a conflict between the structures that have been imposed and the natural way of the people themselves. Is that correct? Yeah, to the extent that the structures have been internalized, which mostly they have been, yes. Yes, Yes, that's the next step. The next step is after the structures have been developed, then the people internalize the structure and they walk around with them. They don't need to have them put on them anymore because we're walking around with these structures inside of ourselves. And And this is the basis of the conflict because we've got an internalized structure that came from outside of ourselves and we have our own natural drives that we that that we are as people and so are you saying that or theorizing that addiction is a rebellion against authoritarianism in a sense yes richard and and we're not saying that all addictions are that but we're saying that the addictions that involve the inner battle for control have that as its basis. Very interesting. In other words, you can have a coffee, so-called addiction, and uh, you would say, well, it's just a habit. I like it. I'm not trying to get rid of it. We say, fine. That's not the addiction we're talking about. We're talking about the addictions that you don't like, that you don't want, but you can't control them, and you experience yourself going out of control. Really what's happening is your inner rebel that doesn't want to be controlled by your inner authoritarian is using that addiction to take control away from the inner authoritarian. And we're, we're, we're saying that these, um, this mental authoritarianism, this divided self, started thousands of years ago when religions created un, an unlivable morality that was anti-our animal nature before knowing that we are animals. These are all pre-Darwinian constructs, not based on our primate nature. So, of course, they don't fit our reality. Uh, you're saying very, very old that have a life of their own in, in civilization that keep perpetuating themselves. And we can't that, have a functional democracy yes. um, as long as we have uh, this is predominating in the populace. 
So you're saying that religion imposed a social order that was impossible for people to keep, which kept them in a constant state of feeling bad about themselves and lowered their self-esteem. And in some way, the similar thing is going on with the democratic structure right now? That the gov- Well, religion had a positive role historically. It wasn't always um, only negative. We're not saying that. Uh, it, it, it did bring social cohesion and still does in many places as well as causing rifts between uh, cultures. But as now that our technological cleverness has created so many challenges and changes in the material world that we need to deal with, and uh, humanity is so huge, and socially also there's many new challenges. Religion, which is basically authoritarian based on tradition and dogma, is no longer capable of being the cohesion that holds society together like a glue. Instead, it's a source of disintegration between and inside countries and cultures. What? Which isn't to say some it doesn't have some good aspects, but we're talking about some core problems with it. I won't go on record as saying that, uh, that Alstead and Kramer are attacking religion. Uh, don't worry about that. Uh, I, I've defined addiction, by the way, as, um, as continued behavior in the face of injury to self, family, or business. So it could rely, and, and I believe it's, uh, that, they're, uh, that addictions are, are really a controllable impulse disorders. Where, and, and I think it's similar to what you're saying, because you're saying that there is, the, the, that there is control, that the person can control the, the addiction, but you're seeing it as a rebellion. It's a very interesting theory that it's a rebellion against the conflict that's imposed by internalizing these structures from outside. Yes, that don't fit our primate nature. That so. do, that do not fit the the basic nature of the person. Right. Well, we've got about uh, three and a half, four minutes left, and uh, I've got a question here. Do we have a question? You want to read it on air? Please go right ahead. I've got somebody here in our, and I'm also I'm going to just just bear with us one second. Please read that out loud right now. Well, you know, you know, it's like Germany didn't uh, do away with religion. It had its own uh, sort of mystical religion, uh, placing the uh, German people at the center. And you can notice how many, uh, you know, religions and cultures consider themselves God's chosen people, which, is, of course, is an authoritarian concept. Even communism, in its own way, became a religion in, you know, its own funny way. A religion that uh, fell apart because it couldn't prove itself in an afterworld, and it uh, it fell apart because it didn't work in this world in in a very basic way. So you know the question of you know what would happen if people didn't have religion and had to depend upon you know their own senses and sensibilities. You know this is an unknown question, but my bet is we'd be in better shape. We're trying to make people more aware of this hidden social virus so they don't go from one authoritarian system to another, the way many disillusioned leftists went into Buddhism and Eastern religions and guru trips and authoritarian groups. Um, That's why we're trying to work at the core with what's the core of this social virus and unmask it. Is the the present conflict between what's called the 99% and the 1% an example of rebellion against authoritarianism? Yes, it, you know, like it's a beginning because people are seeing 
that the discrepancies between the have and have not are uh, greater and that those in power are, you know, feeding more energy into the haves and not uh, caring very much about the have-nots. And, uh, you know, and that goes with what Diana was talking about, the ideology of social Darwinism. You know, the strong make it and the weak are... Um, sacrificed. Sacrifice. Forget them. Drop them. Let them die. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's the, the argument that's being put forth in terms of, uh, of fostering altruism, a kind of altruism, isn't it, for the greater good. Well, we're coming to the end of, uh, of our program, and I want to thank you both, uh, Diana Alstead, Dr. Diana Alstead, uh, Joel Kramer. Their books, The Passionate Mind Revisited, is not a book we talked about today, but it is one you want to look for on Google. The one we talked about today, The Guru Papers, Masks of Authoritarian Power. You're going to want to Google it. And Our website find it. is joeldiana.com. Thank you. Say it again, please. Joeldiana.com. J-O-E-L-D-I-A-N-A.com. That's where you'll see everything we're, we're doing. Okay, folks. Go to joeldiana.com. Thank you so much for being on the program today, and thank you, our listeners. Uh, This program is uh, being brought to you by our staff at KZYX and our in-studio engineer, my friend Mike DeLaura. Please come on back in two weeks at 9 o'clock. And until then, this is Dr. Richard Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for. And it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Mm